Hi everyone, this is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast, and today my guest on the show is Morgan Lee, the Global Media Manager for Christianity Today. She's been a digital media journalist for Christianity Today, hosting and producing a weekly current events podcast called Quick to Listen that I believe has over 1 million listeners. She currently leads the translation team for CT Global, an initiative seeking to elevate the voices, perspectives, and stories of Christians from around the world. And today we're gonna be talking about digital transformation and the global church. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. What's up, Chris? What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Just to give a bit of background, we have some mutual connections, I believe. You're friends with Adam and Chris at the Device and Virtue podcast, which is also kind of a theology of technology podcast. Anything you want to say about their podcast real quick? Yeah, apparently their podcast is a premise around them fighting a lot, which is just, you know, very on brand for my relationship, especially with Chris as well. And (laughs) I love them. You should listen to the podcast. They talk about lots of really interesting, thorny, complex issues. I'm giving them free publicity right now. What can you say? I am too, actually. Yeah, (laughs) the podcast, you know. You also tell me about the Quick to Listen podcast, the current events news podcast that you host. Every Wednesday, we drop an episode of Quick to Listen. It is a podcast where we try to go, we say, go beyond the hashtags and hot takes. But essentially, that means that most people have really strong reactions when current events come out. And they don't necessarily get a chance to talk to experts or to hear from folks that are really people who have paid attention to something for a long time or maybe practitioners in something. And so my job in Quick to Listen, one, I'm the host. And so I work with my co-host to have a conversation with whoever we bring on. But I also look for a guest that I feel like is going to be able to be a little bit above the fray, so to speak. There's usually just, as you can imagine, every single week, there's some sort of giant news event that really solicits this really strong reaction. And we really want to give Christians tools to have much deeper conversations with folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds so relevant because there is so much noise out there and it's hard to kind of cut through the noise and really know what to trust. Absolutely. I and that- as soon as I think that there's like way too much willingness to listen to what celebrities have to say about something, and I don't just mean movie stars, I mean within our own Christian mm-hmm. world, there's celebrity pastors, but they're not necessarily experts right? Or they're not necessarily people who have been able to live something close hand. So for instance, in this last week, we talked about the death penalty, right? And there's lots of Christians that have opinions about the death penalty, but I was really excited because we were able to get someone who is a public defender and who works with clients who have done some really heinous things and who herself is a family member of a victim. Her sister was Mm -hmm. murdered by someone about 30 years ago. And so she was able to bring her expertise as someone who is in the system with others and also who is someone who has lost someone in a very, very heinous way. And Mm -hmm. combining that with someone who also thinks really intentionally and deeply about their faith, I think ends up being a really big gift for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask specifically about CT's global initiative and how you're able to tell the stories of what God is doing around the world. I know that traditionally CT was an English publication, and now you guys are trying to be the central nervous system for the body of Christ, I heard, which would be the global body of Christ. Yeah. What has that process and initiative been like? So translations are something that we have leaned into hardcore in 2020. Whenever people hear the word global and journalism, they assume it means a lot of travel. 
And honestly, most years that is the case and that's what it's going to mean. This year, obviously, COVID really sunk a lot of folks' plans to go different places, including mine and my colleague, Jeremy Weber. Not only was <laughs> the U.S. restricted from going to some of those places, mm -hmm. on top of that, just many of the events that we would have gone to, you know, global congresses or conventions, those are just not happening. Last year, I had the chance to go to two different conferences. I went to one with the Evangelical Fellowship of Evangelical Students. International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, excuse me, which is basically if folks are familiar with InterVarsity, it's their international parent organization. And there were folks there from over 150 different countries, right? So that conference was in South Africa. In November, I went to Indonesia and went to the World Evangelical Alliances, also every 10-year Congress, for lack of a better word. And there were people there from nearly 100 countries. That, mm -hmm. <laughs> that seemed like amazing wonderful dreams from very far away to think about the number of people that were represented there and how easily in many ways people got there, right? Obviously mm -hmm. some folks needed visas, but to be able to pull something off like that just feels obviously tremendously unrealistic, especially where we are in 2020. Mm -hmm. And so my colleague, Jeremy Weber at the start of the year, knowing that travel was going to be something that was not going to happen, what he ended up leaning into translating a lot of our content boy, we have translated so much stuff. We are going to finish this year with more than 350 translations. We are going to finish this year with more than 1.5 million unique readers of this particular mm. content. And that's awesome. That's super exciting. We have translated into more than a dozen languages. That includes languages that I think people would assume, such as Spanish and French and Portuguese. It also means really niche languages that folks who've gotten in contact with us. So for instance, we have a team that translates our articles into Catalan, which is the language that they speak in Barcelona, which is in the larger region of Catalonia. And we also have folks that translate into Gallego, which is known in English as Galician. That's the part of Spain that is right next to Portuguese. And so we have really had a broad appeal in terms of both folks who want to read our content, but also are interested in translating it as well. And so that's been really exciting to up all of that and to be able to encourage folks. We have this translator intake form, for instance, that asks different people questions, right, about how they got connected to us and how they found us. And many people, of course, who are volunteering to translate for us talk about how encouraged they are to see that we're translating into these their languages. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm just really excited that we have that opportunity to do that. On top of that, I'm so excited that we've been able to get in touch with coordinators who are interested in really giving people an experience of reading our content at a very high quality. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I think no one's really interested in low quality translations. And so that's also just been a blessing to find <laughs> like-minded people who want CT to be communicated in an excellent way. Mm -hmm. We're going to be able to link in the description to that form, that volunteer intake form hey! uh, after this podcast. So we could recruit volunteers for you too. And I know for our end on Theotech, we produce that software platform Spiffio for I was going to say, should we talk about that? Let's talk about that. How's that been for your team to be able to use that? So I don't know how much you talk about Spiffio on here, Chris, but for folks who have not used it before, essentially... Spiffio is what many translators have used as kind of the first draft. And then Spiffio more or less creates a line by line generation where you can essentially make the edits 
to the translation that you're looking at and it allows you to not necessarily lose your place as easily as you might. It allows for far more sentence by sentence type of translation systems. And it's something that most of the volunteers that have come through us have been able to use. And then we've in turn given you guys feedback about what's working, what's not working. And I think we've made both of our stuff a lot better as a result. Yeah, it's been great to have that feedback and uh, to see kind of that that system play out. We kind of call it community sourcing translation because, you know, there there's the translation agency approach, which is quite expensive and difficult to localize your content with. There's the crowdsourcing approach, which is kind of hard to manage. And I think CT is great for being in that kind of middle zone mm -hmm. where you have a community of subscribers who really are passionate about your message and, and uh, your platform who you can trust and you can onboard in this way so that you can scale out translation uh, affordably for many different languages. So I, it's been really great to work with you and your team to kind of see that process develop and play out. And we're continuing to make innovations. We're continuing to improve the translation. I think we swapped out translation engines a couple of times mm -hmm. just because we're discovering that this one's performing better and there's less edits that your volunteers have to do. You know, just working on more and more automations. One day we hope to be able to automatically generate a podcast off of the translations, <laughs> like a, mm -hmm. you know, a recording that you can just publish and really cool mm -hmm. things like that. Really cool things so like I that. Yeah, I hope Spiffio can become a part of that central uh, nervous system for the body of Christ. It's like you know, <laughs> some of those nerves and you guys are the information transmitted across those little nerves. Uh, you know, what's yeah. interesting is that around the time that I started using Spiffio was also around the time that I wrote an article about Bible translation and the ways that machine assisted technology was playing a role in being able to really work with, I would call them super niche languages, right? to kind of accelerate their efforts. And so I think that we're in this really interesting point right now where Christian ministry, which includes Bible translation, but also stuff like ours and machine learning slash AI are kind of converging in ways that mm -hmm. I think people who are listening to this podcast are probably gonna be in some ways biased in favor towards. I think yeah. it will be an interesting <laughs> discussion. I mean, part of the reason I did an article, right? Is because there's very strong feelings about how machine assisted technology can be used to translate the Bible or what are the limits, mm -hmm. you know, where, where can it be a huge help, but also where does it take a human to kind of come in and figure out how to finesse a particular sentence or so forth. But I am definitely interested in watching this discussion and seeing where it goes. Yeah, it's actually been interesting. I've been involved in kind of the machine translation field for like a decade now because of my master's degree was in this. And I actually did a research paper that was trying to see how can we apply those techniques to support the 6,000 languages in the world that need a Bible mm -hmm. in their language. Mm -hmm. And we did an approach that was kind of a lexical semantics, like word-based translation, mm -hmm. where the problem with the word is that it can have multiple meanings, like the word mm -hmm. bank can refer to a financial institution or a riverbank. Mm -hmm. And so we invented a UI that lets people kind of pick which which particular meaning they meant and it mm -hmm. improves the quality of the translation. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some approaches in Bible translation that kind of try to integrate that with a meaning representation of a mm -hmm. word that by picking the specific meaning that you mean for every single word in the Bible, the automatic translation you get out of it is a much more usable and readily usable for people to then edit and for these minority languages to edit where there's not very many resources that you can use to train a machine learning model on. Wow. So there's been some interesting research in that field. I think that was the Bible Translators Assistant Project. I've been kind of watching the field. They're mm -hmm. one of the smaller players, I think, but their research approach makes sense for, mm -hmm. for resource languages. Mm -hmm. And then the second one was kind of Google and others have been trying to create a multilingual AI language model. And the okay. idea is 
if I use the data from, let's say, Bahasa Indonesia, the mm -hmm. Indonesian language, which we have a lot of data for, mm -hmm. but then I also train it on some some data where I have a lot less data for, like one of the minority languages, mm -hmm. one of the tribal languages of Indonesia, mm -hmm. the machine learning model can use the knowledge it gained from the major language to actually produce better translations for the minority language where it has a lot less resources. So I just throw that out there to talk about some of the research because I think it is fascinating to see how the innovation is going. And I think that we can see the Bible translated much faster into all these languages as a result of work being done by Christians and even people in just the industry at large. Part of the article's tension slash interesting part to me was just to what extent traditional gatekeepers still needed to play the same role that they had played in years past. And I think that is definitely the question that a lot of machine assisted translation always raises, right? Is mm -hmm. when humans do get involved, because I think most people do agree that humans more or less still need to be involved in some of the process. Does the role that they are going to play mimic what they were doing before? Does it need to be reinvented? How does it need to be changed? The, the exciting part from a Bible translation point of view, right, is that ostensibly you don't necessarily need to have a team from the outside coming in, learning the entire language, then being able to kind of, in some cases, like alphabetize it and so forth. You can ostensibly be able to equip the people who are already there on the ground to be doing stuff, or at least there's, it takes far less energy to kind of get it in the hands of locals, right? Mm -hmm. I think that for many folks in the Bible translation community, there are a lot of best practices that they've used. And so this type of model may not necessarily look similar to how they've done best practices in the past. And I think that's like why I'm really interested in is what will best practices at the end of the 21st century look like around this? And what ways, you know, is technology gonna just continue to surprise us and how this looks? Yeah, those are some great questions. I have my opinions and thoughts. I was hoping that, uh, <laughs> Spiffio would help with Bible translation indirectly. I was dreaming that, you know, local churches on the frontiers could be translating their sermons every single week into a local low resource language. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of a year, you would end up having enough data to start training machine translation models off of. And then if a pastor just preaches through the Bible, then eventually you're going to end up with translations mm -hmm. of things around the Bible that mm -hmm. are already good for that local language. And you just kind of incrementally have it happen just naturally through the rhythm of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, it would be kind of aligning almost like a flywheel where it can go faster and faster with the more churches that are doing this, the more data you get and the better quality translation you get out the other end. And the nice thing about that is I think you have the iterative process built into it because it's almost like every Sunday you'll see if the translation was good or not, or what needs to be changed according to, if you have people who speak that minority language in your church that benefit from it, they would be able to give feedback. And so you start, instead of having to translate the whole Bible first and then get it checked you can actually be doing it as you go, checking it regularly as you're even trying to preach through it and seeing if the translations are benefiting the community that you're trying to serve. So that was That's like really one hypothetical idea. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah. yeah what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, I think that the that is definitely <laughs> part of what people are trying to just kind of wrestle through, right? So for instance, you're talking about translating stuff in real time. I'm not going to present myself as someone who is at all an expert on Bible translation. I have gotten a chance to work on some stories over the years, but so anyone who's cringing that's out there, I'm trying to exercise humility and give you my opinion here. But it does really seem that there's this sense of wanting to make sure all your, you know, your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed before you put something out in the world. And so I think 
<laughs> a much more dynamic approach would really make some people really uncomfortable, you know? And at the same time, one thing I think that is really cool about some of these more local efforts or something that's in real time, right, is that people, passion and excitement cannot really grow through that because you're seeing it kind of come to life before your very eyes. And I think that can be something that is really encouraging. I did want to just also put a plug out right now for our cover stories for our JanFeb issue. So we have a piece that is called When a Word is Worth a Thousand Complaints and When It Isn't, Bible Translation is More Than Just About Technical Accuracy. So mm-hmm. people want to keep reading about Bible translation, which I'm sure there's some folks in here that are. Our cover stories in January for Christianity Today are about this particular thing. And so if you love to just kind of wonk out on these things, come. come there's a lot more there that article. you guys have done. Yeah. Yes, and of course, this article is mostly looking at stuff in an English context, right? But okay. it starts talking about the word virgin, for instance, and how the things have changed as a result of that particular word. <laughs> You'll appreciate this quote that this guy named Douglas Moo often tells people, there are two things nobody wants to know, how sausages are made and how Bibles are translated. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Which is great. Um, and I'll just read this one thing in here since it relates to that. Even though we know that the Bible comes to us in translation, it is nicer to think that every aspect of the, bu- the book we hold is descended directly from heavens. It's uncomfortable to re- remember that scholars who compile, analyze, and translate that text are not infallible. It may even be troubling to think of the market forces, biases, and reader response that play a role, even though we remember choosing and buying the book in our own hands. But this much is sure, the scholars who translate our Bibles love God and love scripture. So mm-hmm. as we conclude this little interlude in Bible translation, yeah. I think people will appreciate reading that piece. I think that's a very humble way to end to end that even interlude because it's true. We are fallible. Even the greatest scholars are fallible and the preachers are fallible. And so to recognize that it's really the spirit's hand applying and using the scripture that is effective is just a humble place to be. And it lets us, wow. I think, be dynamic. Yeah. And so much of like language, <laughs> actually, side note, my mom and I got into a discussion about the F word a couple weeks ago. And I was just telling her that I'm pretty sure, you know, right now that's some of the strongest profanity you can use in English. And I don't think it'll be a curse word in the next 10 years because it's been used so colloquial. It's so colloquialized, right? And how people are using it these Mm. days. And I think that's really true about how language works too, right? There's a crispness that may, that a particular word may elicit or a certain level of gravity or seriousness or profane, you know, level of profanity that may not stick over time too. And so absolutely the Bible translations and the translations of these CRT articles that we're doing right now are very, very much products of 2020, you know, or the yep. year that they were done in. And the yep. cultural- Language is dynamic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a process that's static, you end up not being able to keep up even with how language is changing. So I actually want to take it a little step further because it's really fascinating to me that we started talking about Bible translation because one of the big things that I've been working on at Theotech over the past of the summer was the church digital transformation project. Because of the COVID lockdown, so many churches have had to go to purely online virtual forms. And mm-hmm. there's been many different approaches to that. Some are just live streams, some are Zoom calls, some are Twitch streams and more innovative even than that. Yay. And, uh, <laughs> I think it'd be fascinating to hear from your vantage point as a journalist, what you've been seeing and what's caught your eye. And also for my vantage point. By beginning with scripture, we see that, you know, all of our online communities, how can they be centered on scripture, on the Bible, which really is kind of what defines churches, I think, as a unique community, as opposed to just a social one. Mm -hmm. Um, What what are you seeing in this kind of space? 
Well, I think once again, like every part of COVID in an American context, it depends what state you live in. <laughs> so yeah. definitely at the beginning of the pandemic, almost every single state was issuing stay-at-home orders and restrictions that closed the houses of worship that they were in, which forced in many ways for churches to go online. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of states began to reopen. Some of them began to reopen as early at the, as the end of April. Many of them you know, opened later, May or June or so forth. And now it kind of depends on the state that you live in, how much they allow people to assemble, right? So there's churches in Georgia that have three different services and no one has to wear masks. You know, my wow. parents' church here in California, they don't have church, you know, it's still all online, right? Whenever churches have had the opportunity to be in person, I've seen most churches kind of take advantage of that. In mm -hmm. Illinois, which is where I have lived. A lot of churches went and filed lawsuits against the governor. And so even though a lot of businesses right now are closed, but churches themselves have not been asked to close partially, I would say, because of the lawsuits that um, mm -hmm. the government was hit with in the spring. But, you know, once upon a time, again, at the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like everyone was trying to figure out what their virtual strategy was going to be to meet. And I'm not necessarily sure how much of the innovation was there in terms of a conscientious decision of like, how can we be innovative so much as it was, how can we survive and how can we get connected with mm -hmm. our people? Right. Having said all that, I have gone to a church this year that I have just been so impressed by how innovative it has decided to be with regards to how it does music, you know? So for instance, mm -hmm. we had our Christmas service yesterday and, the pastor had sent an email to all the different musicians and asked them, which songs would you like to do? And then people recorded their own musical spots. And then he tied that together with his sermon video. So we had like really beautiful, interesting music. Obviously it wasn't live, but I think there's something that's yeah. actually kind of really cool about when you don't make music live, right? About how people can mix their audio in different ways, right? In this mm -hmm. instance, someone decided to use sign language for a song. So they had a mm. violin accompaniment with sign language. And the, that church, again, in general, has just done some really fun things. Sometimes they've taped their sermons, which have been preached outside. And I've been appreciative of the ways that they've kind of just been whimsical in their approaches and look <laughs> for just like silly ways to connect. I've always appreciated, and this is something that um, a woman named Priya Parker, who is essentially, I would call her like an expert facilitator. She has basically said that the best events are the ones that you're not just trying to mimic right? What did we do beforehand? And now what are we doing now? And how can we like take all the same elements, but rather what does this medium that we're in allow for? And how can we use that medium to really flourish? Mm. We've had very interesting things. So on my podcast, Quick to Listen, for instance, we talked to a pastor out of Oregon who was basically like <laughs> the video church guru. I'm pretty sure you can mm -hmm. imagine his stage, right? Has the perfect lighting to show up. I'm sure the iPad with all the nodes there, the countdown clock, you know, six angles for like how you cut them, you know, that all are cut together, right? Mm -hmm. For the seamless audio track. Then we also talked to a pastor who is in the inner city in Chicago, right? And we had some really great conversations with him, one, about what his church was doing to engage people. He ended up closing his church, but he would have 6 a.m. calls every single day with people in his congregation. He would just like give them updates about what was happening with COVID. And then people would share prayer requests wow. on there. Amazing, wow. you know, and he, mm -hmm. during uh, Holy Week, for instance, he did something, he held like a quote unquote, like party every single night, you know, as a mm -hmm. way to get people engaged. 
But he also talked about how many of the churches that are in the inner city are churches that feel like, well, where are we going to get money to stay open, right? If we end up closing. I walked okay. along a half mile strip in Chicago about two weeks ago on a Sunday morning. And I want to say like almost every single church on that block was meeting. And there's probably about 15 churches on that block. Wow. So a lot of churches, I think, do feel like from a survival perspective, especially if you're in a place where people are less banked or less likely to give online, then you feel some sort of compulsion to do that. Plus, I think most of us who haven't been able to go to church in the same ways that we've normally would have do feel a, a lack of encouragement in our lives. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people want to do that and come back. So I do think that many churches right now, as we're talking about things, are trying to look for ways to stay open, to be there for people, unless they're in states that have far more intense restrictions. Yeah. It's just um, to hear your stories is interesting because you mentioned that uh, hey, there's one church that I, it almost seems like every single live stream or video is a work of art. <laughs> co-creating producing maybe, a new work of art maybe less Christine. like work of art and more like nfl sunday you know what i'm saying like NFL so much sunday, okay. <laughs> yes. highly produced and uh something you could just kind of you know consume as you as you wish if the if the team that you're rooting for over here it's the seahawks is uh, playing then you're going to pay attention otherwise you I'm may a not Seahawks fan them. just saying oh excellent okay well i'm glad <laughs> go hawks um and then the other church that you mentioned sounds like they were actually i don't know if this is accurate but they were it's really just like a chaplain almost like if someone like following up checking in regularly with each person in their flock they're not really doing a big fancy service but they are just keeping the relationship going and meeting needs as they go is that kind of an ex- accurate description of the spectrum yeah i think that pastor too was having meetings on sunday you know and trying to walk mm-hmm. through all of his congregants and to finding the mute button on Zoom and other things oh, wow. that have become very important, you know, over the course of this year. But yeah, he definitely wanted to make sure that he was being able to also give practical needs, you know, to a congregation yeah. that needs to know what's open, what's not open, where can I get COVID tested? And the reason he was having these meetings at 6 a.m. is because there were a lot of essential workers in his congregation. And so he needed to really check in with them before the day started, many of them didn't have the flexibility of churches that have a much more white collar crowd, which also changes the equation too. You know, if you're working with folks who have a bunch of essential workers, there's much more that can go wrong, right? Given how much exposure so many essential workers are having versus having a church where there's far more white collar workers who are able to do their jobs from home. So that's just a dynamic that will, that is in effect as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just good that, uh, I guess, in this sense, everything could be adaptive. COVID kind of busted that open. Everyone's having to innovate. And you get that kind of adapting function, I guess, among leaders who are deciding, hey, what's the best way that we can actually serve in our context? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, for some folks that has felt more liberating than others, there's something that is being sacrificed by the amount of mental energy that it takes to perpetually be innovating and be hyper responsive to the ways that your locality is handling all of this. And I think it's been a huge stressor for pastors. And then the second one is that obviously we've seen that many Christians have strong and opposing feelings about how the government has handled or has not handled a pandemic. And so churches become one of these places where people are taking out a lot of their grievances. You know, we published articles about the challenges. I wanted to read you one article that we published earlier this year about like, (laughs) it's so funny. We published this about how Singapore was called. Seven lessons from Singapore's church. (laughs) 
when coronavirus reaches your congregation. This was published on March mm-hmm. 11th. So I don't even think okay, that's very early. I don't even think the NBA had ended its season or paused its season at this point. Mm. But already there were some very prescient things. And point number five of that was expect backlash. Even more painful is the criticism that has come from fellow Christians with every decision their leaders have to make. Decide to suspend churches and be castigated for a lack of faith. Decide to continue to gather and be derided as socially irresponsible. If you are pastoring a church in an area where a case of COVID-19 has surfaced, prepare for unprecedented pressures from all levels, from your board to your staff to those in the pew. They will respond based on their own faith convictions and public health opinions. Prepare to go deeper into prayer than you've ever gone before and prepare for the reality that your decisions will not please everyone and prepare to lose members no matter what. Mm-hmm. So Singapore knew <laughs> already by March 11th about what that reality was going to look like. And I think there's a lot of church leaders who would be nodding their head to every single one of those things that they have just felt very much at their limits of who they are able to please and do right by this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just sounds very exhausting. It's uh, you can't win, basically, is what it sounded like from what you just quoted to me. You're gonna get, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get knocked down on every side. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so lift a prayer up for the church leaders in your life this season. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Especially because yeah, many think- of them never went into ministry, you know, to be digital technology people or to handle public health crises or to even really be separated from people that they love for that long. That's definitely a hard part too, is just to not have that regular connection to your congregation, which is what so many people love about doing ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I'll do a little plug, uh, this past summer with uh, Seattle Pacific University, we created a church digital transformation learning pathway or curriculum that's designed to kind of address those questions and needs for church leaders who really felt like that's not what they were meant to do. What are they supposed mm-hmm. to do now? And it just mm-hmm. walks through kind of six different things of digital strategy, what that actually means mm-hmm. and what it looks like to create a culture of experimentation, since that's kind of mm-hmm. what churches need in this time when everything's changing yeah. so fast. And also a space for grief and lament to be able to mourn what was lost in this process and also have hope for the future. I'll put a link up to that also in the podcast description for anyone who wants to try that out. But is there anything that you'd like to say Morgan, just to anyone listening, whether they're a pastor or a technologist or someone who's passionate about, you know, the global body of Christ and how God is actually using the pandemic to fulfill scripture, anything that you're seeing that you want to bear witness to or encourage people with? Great question. I have told my pastor back in Chicago that I'm just so thankful for the ways that he's looked to actively engage all of us. I do feel like almost every single month of this year has been something new for a church. The way that my church meant before the pandemic, twice a month they had what they call all together church, which feels like more like a traditional Sunday morning experience. And then twice a month we would meet over a meal. And so the church is small and it was kind of divided into three groups. And there would be a Saturday night group, a Sunday night group, Mm. and a Sunday morning brunch group. And so obviously the coming together to eat a meal part of the service has been something that has not really been able to happen all of this year. And the altogether Mm -hmm. church has not been physically altogether, right? We have had times where we've met at the park in smaller groups. We have had times where we've been on Zoom doing things. They've tried to still give us ways to socialize with each other over Zoom. They're hosting a Christmas party in a couple days. 
But I've just been really admiring of the continued desire to want to engage with folks. And on the one hand, it's like, yes, duh, it's a church, right? But, you know, like my church is small, but lots of people have opinions about what works best for them to meet. And yeah. should we have food at this gathering or should we not have food at this gathering? The dinner component or the food component is a huge part of our identity, right? And so in many yeah. ways, the pandemic has forced us to go through our own identity shift as a result to not have this very important thing, which is eating together in each other's homes and not have that be a possibility. And so I've just mm -hmm. been really proud of the fact that we've been able to push through all of this. And I think most Americans, and I would include our church leaders in there, feel like this has gone on way longer <laughs> than they ever expected. <laughs> I would say that yeah. maybe in other countries, there's been a sense that like, yeah, it'll be like the long haul. But for Americans, it's like been like, but we really thought it was going to be over in June. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, uh, that type of thing, or maybe by September or whatever, the worst of it. And so I just wanted to shout out, obviously, all these different church leaders. I do think that to the extent to which, you know, that this particular article that we published about stuff in Singapore, this is a great time to learn from different people in very concrete ways around the world. I was really happy mm -hmm. that CT could published different accounts of folks who had experienced COVID, church leaders that are in Spain, church leaders that are in France, you know, who personally had COVID and how they worked through all of this. Yeah, I've been most proud of our work when I feel like it's been able to kind of connect people with voices who are not just American. Obviously, America in many ways has struggled more than any other country, especially given the expectations that you would think for this country, right? <laughs> the gap yeah. between expectations and reality is extremely large. And so I think that Americans really know that they have a lot to learn right now. And we're fortunate mm. that we don't necessarily have to figure it out by ourselves because there's a lot of people who have done it so much better than us. I really appreciate that closing word. Yeah, it does sound like God is using the pandemic to work on our church's identity, that we really are the global body of Christ, that it's not America centric and mm -hmm. that these voices from around the world don't only have credibility. There's so much that we in America could learn from them. I remember early in the pandemic, I posted an article about a church in Wuhan and how they mm -hmm. reacted to their lockdown orders. And it was just mm -hmm. stunning to see that a lot of the practices they were doing are just acts. It's just the book of acts happening virtually and people would mm -hmm. still go to people's homes just to help the people who are in need of medicine or food and things like that. But mm -hmm. the parallels were incredible. And it just felt like, wow, we really, we're really humbled by this. And God's kind of taking us back down to our essentials of like, well, what does it actually mean for us to be following Christ in, in our community and to be connected to the whole body? So, I do think that that X part is actually, I was just gonna say one thing, that X part thing is exactly right. where I do think some churches have struggled with to some extent is that some of the default ways that people love to care for other people have also been the ways that <laughs> are most discouraged in many ways. Obviously, mm. physical presence is something that I think a lot of people would naturally recognize as a way to support and be with other people. I think a lot of us crave sitting around other people's tables for dinner, right? Or just hanging out on the couch for a really long time, especially for friends that are sick and aren't feeling well. Oh, yeah. And relearning how to care for people during this time is <laughs> kind of intense. And it definitely is something that I feel challenged mm -hmm. by a lot as someone who really loves being with other people to force myself to figure out ways that can still feel they're at least doing something right then. And I will say at the same time, I've heard from folks who aren't able to leave the houses regularly for whatever reason that 
they, in many ways, ironically, have felt more connected because there's so much stuff. For instance, like take conferences, right? If conferences are happening this year, then the conferences are online. And that's a mm-hmm. big difference from just, oh, I won't be able to go to a conference period, right? And I know that those folks are, are already wondering how will they feel included in stuff, you know, as it moves back to going to in real life stuff. And I think that's a question that we all need to be thinking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to yeah. lose that. We yeah. don't want to lose the fact that all these people can be connected, even if we mm-hmm. do have physical events in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know what that will look like. I do think that to some extent, the desire for stuff to just go back to quote unquote normal will end up, you know, privileging the folks that really like that IRL normal, right? But I hope that, you know, as churches, for instance, that have had virtual church, right? And you've been able to get more people who wouldn't be able to actually physically come to church for whatever reason, right? We can think of what our strategy and plan will be for including them in it. Yeah, one of the things that we concluded from our project was that uh, at first we thought hybrid church would be the new normal. But then Mm -hmm. we discovered that when people try to do hybrid even now, unfortunately, it takes away so much attention from virtual that you do neither well. So you end mm-hmm. up not doing your physical well because you're so focused on like, okay, how do we make this work with social distancing and everything else? And you also, your virtual presence is just like a camera looking at a preacher. One of the conclusions for our project was now is the season while we have all this ambiguity and lockdown to actually put a lot of energy and resources on your virtual side to focus on mm-hmm. that and making that experience as good as it can be. Because mm-hmm. if the physical comes, you already have all that experience anyway to be able to reenact that. But mm-hmm. if you divide your attention now, it's, it, you know, you're going to miss that window of opportunity to really develop a, a virtual connection, presence, um, and ministry that could be very effective. That um, makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. That's kind of where we settled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, once again, I'm going to do a couple plugs. So one is for, if you want to help uh, Christianity Today tell God's global story by volunteering to be on the translation team, we're going to include a link to that in the description. Uh, also, if you're looking for curriculum about church digital transformation, you can go to learncdx.theotech.org and see the curriculum that we produce there. And also, if you're interested in a platform for community source translation to make your worship services accessible in many languages, Theotech produces a product called Spiffio, SPF.io, an all-in-one platform for translation and uh, accessibility that we'd love to be able to share with you. So uh, with that, I will close up, wrap up this show. Morgan, it's been great to be able to talk with you. Until next time, I hope that we can connect again soon. Thank you, Chris. One other thing that I link that I would ask if you could drop in the bio as well as we, in addition to looking for translators, are also still looking for folks who would be interested in helping us do stuff on social media. So if that sounds more appealing to you than translating CT articles, I can give Chris the link to that. So that's to become a social media manager for another language. Is that right? Social media brand ambassador. Yes, for another brand ambassador. Yeah. another language so if you want to be a social media brand ambassador for christian today in another language we'll connect you to morgan thank you okay <laughs> fantastic <laughs>